Hello and welcome to Peaceful at Heart. My name is Cedric Martin and I'm going to be your host. Each episode we're going to take a closer look at the book Peaceful at Heart, Anabaptist Reflections on Healthy Masculinity. We'll dive into the chapters, hear from the authors, and think a little bit more about what healthy masculinity might look like in our modern context. Joining us today is Jamie Pitts. Jamie, thanks for your work on the book so we can discuss it today. How are you doing? Thanks, Cedric. I'm doing well. Great. Glad to hear it. I, I wanted to say that I really appreciated your chapter and, and the background that you gave us. Uh, you start your chapter with the question, what makes a man? Uh, you acknowledge it's a, it's a very complex question, but I, I wonder, do you still find yourself asking this question since writing this chapter? Uh, have you come up with any new responses? Yeah, I continue to think about the work I have done in this chapter and the kind of perspective I developed here uh, in the research I drew on. I don't know that I would say I've come up with a kind of new additional lens or response that I would want to add to what I said, but I, I do continue to find it helpful. You know, I think about, for some reason, I keep going back to the, uh, the January 6th uh, invasion or whatever you want to call it of the U.S. Capitol here. Mm. And, you know, you have this guy with the, the Viking <laughs> suit on and stuff um, and all sorts of uh, folks carrying weapons and just the the images of masculinity or what I call in the chapter icons of masculinity that are visible there. Um, that kind of event really signaled or it signals to me that there are a variety of masculinities within even, you know, a given culture. And in some ways, some, one, one way you can interpret the culture wars of a given society, the, the, the cultural fissures, um, at least of this society. And here I'm in the United States um, by sorting out, you know, or one way, one lens on these, these conflicts is trying to sort out, you know, what kind of icons, iconic masculinities are really venerated and valued and uh, seeing the QAnon Viking in the U S Senate uh, was a pretty clear sign of, a, a particular vision of masculinity um, being raised up and praised and pursued. Um, and in some ways, you know, that fits if you think about at the time you're, you know, the U.S. senators, the men in their business suits, it's a very different kind of image of masculinity. And so some of what we were seeing there was a kind of conflict between these visions. So I would say in terms of how I continue to think about these matters, it's really been I think even becoming even more aware of just how central uh, versions of masculinity are towards the different kind of fissures we have within our culture. Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a bit of a dichotomy between the different kinds of masculinity that presented itself there for sure. I, uh, Notice that you spent a section of your chapter on, on birth certificates and, and the body. You talk about the assumptions that are, are made at you, about you at birth and, and for others at birth, but what sparked this idea for you and, and what does it say about our society? 
What sparked the idea was thinking about a comment from the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. He writes somewhere that the state is a kind of um, institution of recognition from birth through the grave. And that our, our status, um, and, and this is, would be the case personally, but also for other communities and institutions within uh, geographies that are controlled by uh, administrative states, that to be able to really have a presence, have a, an identity, um, the sort of fr the basic framework for that, that identity has to be conferred by the state. And, and so, you know, that really struck me because I think we, we tend to think about, well, we have identities, personal identities that come from our families or let's say our churches or, um, or other cultural factors that, that we may see as much older and bigger than the state. Um, and, you know, here I'm talking about race and gender and other identity markers of that nature. Uh, but this comment from this sociologist got me thinking quite a bit around, well, how are even some of those fundamental characteristics that we often take for granted, um, such as our racial or gender identity, um, how, how actually? So that was, that was a comment from this sociologist, but what does that actually look like? And so I started thinking about my, my own uh, birth certificate and thinking about, well, what actually happened when that birth certificate was filled out? Who was there? What kind of power did they have to make these claims about me, to say that they were officially uh, legitimated to be able to make judgments about who I was as this infant coming into the world? Obviously, my parents were there and they were giving certain data, certain information that were that was taken as reliable to some extent. Um, but there was a doctor or nurse there who had been has an accreditation from that goes back to the state. Um, and then thinking about, oh, you know, I've traveled around, I've lived in different places, I've carried this birth certificate around, kind of just thinking about it mostly as a kind of piece of nostalgia. But actually, that birth certificate continues to be quite powerful. It continues to um, it legitimates, it, it gives legitimacy to any claims I would have about myself uh, insofar as those don't con conflict <laughs> with what's on the birth certificate uh, in regards to my race or my gender or my name, where I'm from. Um, and, and so there's things that can be uh, done with that birth certificate or that are done right? and especially you know one obvious way to think about this is relationship to citizenship status you know and it's obviously not just because i happen to have that birth certificate in a drawer that i am counted as a u.s citizen but if there were a dispute about my citizenship status that document would be um able to be verified uh it, it does have a certain kind of power that again because it's a state document and the state could check its own records and, and tell whoever was was curious, let's say if I was immigrating to another country or something like that, say, oh yes, Jimmy Pitts is a, um, a United States citizen. Uh, so thinking about how this document that we, we tend not 
to actually think about that much, thinking about the context in which it was filled out, what it actually can do for us and how it continues to shape our personal identities. Um, I thought that would that was a really helpful way for me um, to be thinking through these questions around gender and identity. And I thought it would be a helpful, um, helpful image and um, document to consider for or entry place into the conversation for others around uh, around gender. Yeah, absolutely. I, I found that to be true. And uh, you think about how the the state then gives you a, a value, assigns you a value at birth about what it's saying about you for sure. Now, uh, in a similar vein, you go on to talk about pinks and blues and how different colors, toys, icons, as you say, are, are gendered. I suppose uh, this is a bit of a, a nature versus nurture question, but from your research, what, what impact does this have on uh, children that we're raising, and specifically boys, as we think about masculinity? What impact does this have on our future generations? Yeah, on the nature versus nurture question, I think, you know, that's a perennial chicken versus the egg kind of question. Um, part of what I'm trying to do in this section of the chapter is to caution overly quick moves to say, well, we know the answer to questions about gender or sexuality or another identity marker because we know the truth about our bodies, about um, biology and so forth. And what I, uh, the reason I'm cautious about that is because the claims we make about bodies and what we take as legitimate knowledge about bodies from the sciences, that information is often very new. Um, it's, you know, I talk about genetics or hormones. I mean, we didn't know there were genes <laughs> uh, about a hundred plus years ago. We didn't know there were hormones. So if your argument rests on, well, this is how things have always been. And I know that because I know about, I know about genetics or hormones. I think, well, it's, it's interesting that your, you know, your, your, your argument rests on at least one part of it rests on some very new ways of seeing bodies and classifying and categorizing bodies. And so I think, you know, when we think about future generations, I think we need to become very sensitive to the, to the role of scientific knowledge and help in the, in the way we classify bodies, the way we name people and slot them into certain kind of identity categories that may have made sense to other, at other times and places um, for a community. Uh, not to say that what a community has said is irrelevant or that doesn't matter. Um, and, but, sci you know, the sciences have been both uh, disruptive of kind of traditional ways of seeing, uh, but we've also seen them, uh, science is kind of weaponized by different factions and various cultural disputes to say, well, again, you know, we know the truth because we know the science. Um, and it's, it's not just this question, there are a variety of questions around, uh, you know, reproduction, um, gender, sexuality, race, et cetera, all 
have been affected by the ways that the sciences have reshaped our understanding of ourselves and our bodies. So we need to become, I think, sensitive to that because new generations will benefit from different scientific findings. And if, if we're continuing to say, well, we know the truth because we have, you know, this, this scientific understanding, the nature of science is to change. Scientists by definition are always seeking to review and revise uh, their views. And so a, a scientific concept that seems to be really adequate at a, at a, in a certain stage of a given science um, may in a hundred or 200 years need provision. So if you've invested all your weight on, well, this is, this is the linchpin of my claims about my identity, then you're probably in for some trouble. <laughs> and similarly, I mean, the argument, I think that the way things have always been is, is an argument that needs to be reconsidered. Um, and part of the, again, part of the work I'm trying to do in this chapter is to say that things have been different at different times and places. And that's not to say there's no similarities. It's not to say we can't have a conversation about what we prefer, uh, whether that's a preference for the way things have been or the way things are or the way things we want to be. Um, but arguments that start off from the position of, well, the best option is the way things have always been, um, I think are troubled by <laughs> the variable variability of history. And on, you know, on the, on the other hand, uh, arguments that start simply from saying, well, this is the best vision of the future and we can simply embody that today. Um, those arguments also are troubled by <laughs> the persistence of the past and of the present and the way that people as, as, you know, future generations, develop and change uh, the complexity that, that comes with even within a generation of people who would want to claim different perspectives on uh, different understandings of their own identities. So we need to, uh, part of what I'm trying to do here is just, is to call us to be, be a bit more careful with how we talk about um, these different categories. And um, just because you were, <laughs> dressed in blue as a boy does not mean that um, blue is for boys, hmm. you know, and that's one of the, this little fascinating uh, anecdote that I came across was that, you know, in the early 20th century, pink was seen by many Americans as more manly. It was, it was a more stable color. Um, and so pink was the color for, for boys. But when I was a kid, I loved pink Converse high top shoes all, all the Converse All-Stars. And yeah. I remember these kids making fun of me. For, Why would you wear pink or whatever? And, you know, I did not have, I was not <laughs> invested in, you know, knowingly in different, you know, different gender discourses or something like that. But I remember feeling that the strangeness of, well, I just happen to like this color and I'm being told that it's not manly, essentially, even as a, as a nine-year-old boy. Um, I'm hoping that for, for kids in the future, uh, that at the very least, if they like pink and they don't, you know, they're a boy, that um, they will be uh, not shamed for uh, their color preferences. But of course, we can expand beyond that um, as well. I uh, just on that note that you're talking about, I wanted to uh, 
note the irony that we're both ended up wearing blue shirts here to this interview today. Uh, despite uh, the, the work we've decided to, to push against the pinks and blues, and we still ended up here in the blues. I, uh, I'm also led into another question that comes out of that. You talk about the shifts and the waves of uh, different Christian masculinity lenses throughout history. What, what does that tell us about masculinity in general? Is it more fluid than our modern definitions, or are we still discovering what the Bible actually says about masculinity? Hmm. Good question. I would say that what is the, the variable, uh, the variability of Christian masculinities have to say about masculinity more generally? On that question, I would say that Christianity is a, is a good example of the kind of um, different masculinities that are present within any historical tradition or within any uh, given community at a given place and time. Uh, Christianity is not exceptional in, in this regard. Um, and so learning about the, the history of Christian masculinities can, can be a lens to help us understand the broader diversity of masculinities um, in global cultures. I'm, a, I'm, I'm interested in this, this language of fluidity. In some ways, I think what my chapter has done is to really support interpretations of gender and sexuality as well as uh, fluid. I'm aware of how that, that term fluid has become a kind of, uh, it has become a, a weapon and a um, kind of a, a point of contest within the culture wars. So people will say, oh, well, they just think gender is fluid. End of, end of story. Um, with the implication that, you know, gender can be, that there's some people who think gender can be whatever you feel like it at a given moment. And that the alternative to fluidity is having one stable for all time definition of masculinity, femininity, gender, and so on. Um, and so here I would want to say, you know, I try to say in the chapter at a couple places, you know, we can't, our bodies are not endlessly malleable. We can't, sprout wings and fly um, just because we want to. Uh, so there are some parameters to the fluidity of identity insofar as we're talking about embodied identity. Um, and at the same time, I do think the implications of that statement and that reality for questions of gender and sexuality is really unclear because as I as I have been saying, um, the cultural uh, dimensions of how we come to define masculinity, femininity, gender are such that we don't have a kind of uh, clear limit place where we can say, well, okay, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, I know I can't sprout wings and fly, but in terms of transformation, gen like transformations of gender and sexuality, there are obviously different kinds of moral considerations uh, that come into play that we can and should talk about, but what the limits are kind of built into our bodies um, is I think a lot less clear than 
the question about whether or not I can, you know, spontaneously sprout wings. We know that that's a limitation of the body. We don't know as clearly what kind of limitations are for sexuality and gender. And part of the issue with trying to move to that question of limits quickly, um, or trying to make that a kind of early part of the conversation is those limits have been, have tended to be defined by the guardians of certain quite restrictive definitions on gender, masculinity, femininity. Um, and so uh, we have not heard a lot until very recently of people who want to say, well, actually, you know, my experience or my sense of myself doesn't fit um, those categories. Or I'm really interested in exploring some kind of alternative um, understanding and experience. Uh, we have not, or there has not been a lot of space given for that kind of exploration, at least within Christian cultures. Um, various times and places you could say that there has been more space uh, for exploration and difference, but there's been a lot of emphasis in much of Christian history on conformity to a kind of uh, a, a public version of masculinity that ha has been defined by uh, people who are wielding power in the church and often in broader society. So again, I mean, my, po my point here is just that when we talk about fluidity, I want to say, well, it's not, you know, to the people who would just dismiss any question, any discussion of masculinities, for instance, is, oh, you're just one of these gender fluid guys. You just think there's no limits. There's no uh, parameters. You can just do whatever you want uh, with your body. I want to say, no, I mean, obviously there are some limits to our body, our bodies. Um, and how those pertain to the question of gender and sexuality is less clear. And if we're even going to move towards a conversation about what those limits are, we need to uh, hear from those folks and uh, prioritize those folks who, um, whose voices have long been silenced and experiences have long been ignored uh, or suppressed and uh, erased in various ways. So I think there's another aspect of your question. Well, well, yeah, am I getting the full different parts of your question or is there something I've left out? No, yeah, that that, uh, that definitely answers the, the question. I mean, uh, responds to the question. I don't know if we ever truly have an answer if we're continuing to develop what masculinity looks like and if it changes over time. But um, I, I would say, yes, you did respond to the question. Uh, Jamie, I'm, I'm curious, what, what role models did you have growing up and, and did they leave an impact on your vision of what healthy masculinity looks like? Yeah, well, I definitely had role models. Um, I, you know, I had a father and a big brother <laughs> who were models in different ways for me. Um, I had, I was really into sports and so I had, you know, uh, other folks who followed baseball in the 1980s would know, you know, I had the pictures of big muscled baseball and basketball and football <laughs> players with yeah. often with mustaches and beards and so forth. Um, uh, I, was, I was always really into music. And so looking at these images on 
you know, on albums back when there were still albums, <laughs> records were still the main way people got music and listened to music. Um, and that went a very different direction because often these men were, you know, spandex <laughs> and had long hair. And, you know, I never really aspired to kind of dress or look like these guys, but there was something that I still um, really aspired to. And of course, you know, as I talk about in the chapter, uh, race is comes into play here because uh, the athlete, any of the athletes and musicians I admired were uh, black men and Latino men. Um, and uh, so, you know, in early stages of, of appreciating their music, not really having any idea of what that meant, um, the, the kind of racial differences, but, uh, you know, in some ways, I think it'd be fair to say appropriating <laughs> dimensions of their, of their masculinities, um, their raced masculinities, uh, later learning, I think to approach and appreciate their artistry and identities with more respect, um, and, and still learning, you know, and still as kind of role models in some ways. So I would say I've had a, a variety of different kind of role models. Then we could talk about, you know, other church leaders, friends, and so forth. Um, in terms of the, the health of those role models, I would say in, in most cases, if not every case, uh, the response to that question would be mixed. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, I think from a kind of more systemic perspective, we can say that because this is uh, this question of masculinity and for those of us who do uh, identify as men and embrace in some ways, some kind of masculine, um, some understanding of masculinity, it's complex. Uh, it's complex because of what I've been talking about in terms of our awareness of different models and our experience, our embodied experiences. I mentioned this being, you know, I have a very vivid memory of being in my school lunchroom at probably eight or nine and being made fun of for these pink Converse All-Stars. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, this is a moment, you know, I think this is, this is a kind of formational moment that many young boys have. And I, you know, girls would have their own equivalents, I'm sure. Um, but many young boys have these memories in which the kind of the emotional response to feeling inadequate as a man, um, the feeling resistance to that, <laughs> that sense of inadequacy, you know, that kind of complex uh, experience that we have often very early on, we carry those memories with us, not just in our brains, but throughout our bodies. And they form their, their, they contribute to how we continue to navigate our world and how we position ourselves in relationship to other men, especially to role models, the kind of role models we, we gravitate towards and call upon, seek to emulate in different ways. Um, and so I think that, again, that, that kind of, but the point I'm trying to make is that we, we, ca we carry with us already, and I would say probably in many cases, if not most or all, a sense of at least multiple versions of masculinity, multiple possible role models. Um, and so different role models, I think, can help us access different 
communities, different senses of ourselves, different senses of feeling good about ourselves or bad about ourselves. Um, and, and so just the, the existence of role models is complex and the, the you know, the healthiness of those role models. Uh, and as we become role models, perhaps for others, uh, knowing the kind of complexity of our own experiences, uh, it means that there's, it, it's difficult to have a, a really integrated sense of masculine identity. So not to say that it's impossible. And I, I would say, you know, I, in various times and places, have benefited from uh, from men whom I have admired and been able to say, uh, within your cultural context, um, you are uh, embodying uh, a version of masculinity in a way that is really compelling and seems to be not a kind of domination-oriented version of masculinity, but a, a masculinity that... Um, is oriented towards caring for others and uh, uh, supporting and loving uh, within community. Yeah, thanks for that, Jamie. Uh, Jamie, uh, we're unfortunately running out of time here. I, I do want to thank you for, for spending your, your time with us today. But before you go, did you have any sending thoughts for us? Sure. I, I know that the question of masculinity can be uh, very difficult for many people. It can raise a lot of anxieties. I mentioned earlier about, you know, there's kind of a, a reflexive resistance in some sectors of, uh, at least in North America, to what what would be, you know, considered gender, gender fluidity or anything approaching that. And so my hope is that uh, men can make space for one another. Men can, uh, without giving in to the anxiety of, you know, if, if I hear somebody else's experience of masculinity, um, if I hear uh, someone else say, well, this, this actually feels, seems like um, a, a more healthy understanding of masculinity, and it might not be exactly what yours is and it might actually make room for different possibilities of masculinity that that kind of that kind of conversation wouldn't simply be met with with a shutting down um, of of the dialogue and my hope is that uh, men who would feel resistant to that kind of conversation um, would be able to pause and hear that there's some good news. Uh, in the possibility of multiple masculinities, because it means that what we inherit uh, from our culture, from our communities, our families, and so forth, uh, as definitions of masculinity aren't inherently the only definitions. And so the uh, some of the more toxic dimensions of those forms of masculinity, some of the ways those versions of masculinity can be oriented more towards domination and violence, uh, defining men as inherently aggressive and needing to control, uh, that doesn't have to be who we are. And, and so my hope is that any man listening to this or reading the book, engaging in these kind of conversations would be able to uh, pause if you are feeling any resistance and, and think about some of those uh, less healthy dimensions and Thank God that that doesn't have to be 
who we are. That doesn't have to have the last word and who we are as men. That's great. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, I will definitely think about how we can continue to make space for each other as I go into my day. I uh, really appreciate your time and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too, Cedric. Many thanks. Peaceful at Heart was recorded in the city of Tuckeronto, the land covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. This is the Dish with One Spoon territory. The Dish with One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans, and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. We all eat out of the dish, and all of us that share this territory with one spoon. We want to acknowledge the ancestral lands and waterways of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Seneca, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Takaranto is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We wish to thank them and any other nations who cared for this land. Colonization is a continuing form of oppression, so it is important that we acknowledge the lands and digital spaces that we are holding and taking up. We remember the acknowledged and unacknowledged, recorded and unrecorded, past, present, and future. We are all treaty people. Peaceful at Heart was produced and edited by myself, Cedric Martin. It was made possible thanks to Mennonite Central Committee, Mennonite Church Eastern Canada, Be in Christ Church of Canada, Theatre of the Beat, and of course, by Mennonite Men. To find more resources, head to MennoniteMen.org.